Uh, we're starting our, uh, our Christmas series. Um, how many of you know Christmas doesn't start until December? You, you know that, right? Our staff start on the 1st of November. So it's been like, can we put our Christmas trees up yet? I just want to thank, hey, we, we got some great interns this year. Um, they're here down the front, but honestly, these guys are just brilliant. They came in this week and they, they put up these, these Christmas trees and all of that stuff, so uh, it's looking good. And um, uh, just as you know, if you still haven't got your Christmas tree, Ikea is the best place for a Christmas tree. They're 25 pound and they give you a 10 pound voucher back for January, so just giving you a tip. Hey, don't tell you I'm not trying to save money now in a, in a cost of living crisis, but you're very welcome today. It's good to be back. It took a wee break in November from preaching. Um, I've done a fair bit from the summer, um, and it's good to be back preaching. But uh, I'm starting into a series called The Gift. And um, uh, it's interesting whenever, um, uh, we, we, you, you know, whenever your pastor and Christmas comes around, you know, this is like a 14th year, you kind of start running out of ideas. So you start going back on yourself. And um, uh, I'm not going to lie, I've stole this from another, another church, okay? So I'm just going to be straight up the front there, all right? Just in case anybody's heard it before, straight up. But it's so good that I thought that it'd be good to share with you guys. Um, and uh, so we've called this The Gift, and uh, we're going to be studying this morning from um, Matthew chapter 2. But uh, let me give you some context before you start. You'll remember the story of Jesus' birth. He, he was born in Bethlehem. It's a small, a small town just outside a, a capital city of J- Jerusalem. Uh, uh, for those of you going to Israel in a couple of months' time, we will be going there. And uh, um, it was under the reign of a king called King Herod. And he wasn't a particularly good man, but uh, anyway, he, he was there. And we had some wise men um, who traveled to see Jesus. Now, how many uh, there were? Well, if you've ever watched a nativity play, you'll know that there was usually kind of three. That's what you see. Um, and we know there was at least three gifts. Um, the truth is we don't know how many wise men or, or magi there were. Um, we know there were three gifts, so we automatically assume uh, th- three wise men came. But there was probably a lot more than three. And they definitely didn't have tea towels on their head, okay? <laughs> All right. And uh, what we do know about these particular men, these magi, that, uh, these wise men, that they were incredibly educated, they were probably fairly wealthy, and they'd traveled a serious distance to see the savior of the world. Um, it's kind of interesting that there was a star, there was a cosmic event that took place that these guys had been watching for a millennia. And if you do a little bit of history into the wise men and where they came from, and there is some context, uh, se- separate historic history outside of the scripture about who these men were, you'll realize that some of them had followed the, the, the lineage of some historical prof- prophecy about when a star would follow them that they, uh, well, Bethlehem. There's a whole story behind why Bethlehem was a place of Jesus' birth. There, there's a whole story, which I'll, I'll not go into this morning, but it involved um, a little hut where, where the spotless lambs were taken to. So all of the, all of the area in Israel would have taken a spotless lamb if it was born, and they would have brought it to Bethlehem, and they placed it in this hut, and they, they wrapped it in swaddling clothes, and all of the lambs that were placed in this hut were without blemish, were perfect, and they, were, they would be the temple uh, sacrifice lambs that would go to Jerusalem. Uh, but all the shepherds would have came and this is where they brought them to. And Bethlehem was the birthplace. And um, let me pick up the story in Matthew 2, 10 to 11. It should appear. This is what it says. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Everybody say filled with joy. Everybody say, I need to be filled with joy. <laughs> Come on. And they entered the house and they saw the child. This was <laughs> his mother Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. This is what it says, they opened their treasure chests and they gave him gifts of gold, 
frankincense and myrrh. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I don't know about you, but when I had kids, nobody came to my house with gold. I wish they did. Oh, no, no, no. We didn't get gold. We got onesies. We got nappies. We got a baby snot cleaner. Why there's a baby snot cleaner? But we got a baby snot cleaner. Have you ever seen those things work? Oh, terrible. Who's got one? Actually, no, no. So, do I need it? No, I don't need to go into details. I'll leave it with you. But that's what we got when, when we had children. But, but these wise men brought, brought these three gifts of gold. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As well as, an incredible, uh, as being incredibly valuable, they were incredibly practical. And they were deeply spiritual in their nature. And all scholars agree that they were uh, valuable and spiritual. Um, but there's also a picture here of the foreshadowing of some of the images that these gifts were of who Jesus would become, what he would represent. Gold is valuable in itself, but it represents Jesus' kingship. Myrrh, which I'm going to talk about next week, which represented the suffering and the servitude of the Lamb of God. It's this idea of this pure, spotless Lamb that came out of heaven to become human. But today I want to talk about frankincense. And uh, uh, now I can tell you um, the, the meaning of frankincense, but let me tell you a little bit about, about, about what frankincense is. According to my essential oil advisors, and I've got many of them, Rachel Henderson's over here, okay, she knows all about oils. Um, it's, it's, an, it's a kind of an all rounder oil. Now, <laughs> later on, I've got a little bottle of it. And if you like it, it's dangerous, potent stuff, I'm telling you. All right? And uh, it's, uh, it's kind of funny. It's, it's really funny. I grew up Catholic. Uh, anybody else grew up Catholic here? No other Catholics with us? <laughs> Two, three. Oh, God, I'm not like, yo. <laughs> We've got a few. And one of the things is when you went, uh, yeah, we've got four or five. It's great, okay? And uh, <laughs> Protestants. Um, one of the things was, was that if you ever go to a funeral, um, you, what you would have had is, the, 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 it's called a thurible, and it was a swingy thing, and they would come in, and you'd light it with coal, and they'd put incense in there, and it would burn it. And the idea was the smoke offering was representative of the prayers going up to God in heaven. And, uh, yeah. And I, I don't know about you ladies, but there's some oils that just smell really bad. Anybody here wear fake tan? No, none of you girls. No, you all went quiet there, so you did. No, we don't wear any fake tan. We got the real one. We, we got a clue. The smell gives you away. And the bits you've missed on the back of your ankles gives you away too. <laughs> All right. It's, it's, it's what we commonly know in Northern Ireland is called oompa loompification. <laughs> but but have, you, have you ever had those oils? I, I don't know. There's some oils and, and you've got the fake tan smell, right? But there's some oils are really nice and some oils are really bad. Rachel wears this oil sometimes at night and it's what I call a not tonight oil. It's minging. It's stinking. Just some oils smell really bad. And I get it. So you just ply her with lots of nice perfume, make it hide, go away. You see, you told you, you're meant to laugh at church. 
All right, that's okay to laugh in church. If you can't laugh in church, there's an inner Pharisee inside of you and you need to shoot it, okay? Ask the Lord to, to give you a pharisectomy, okay? All right, you need one, all right? Okay, well, let, me, let me tell you a little bit about frankincense as an oil, all right? Now, here we go. I, I read this, okay? I have no idea what it means, but hopefully somebody out there does. It possesses antiseptic, astrinsic, cumulative, juratic, digestive, sedative, uterine, voluntary, therapeutic properties. I have absolutely no idea what that means, but it sounds good. <laughs> that's probably true. Um, but it's one of these oils that's kind of like, it's meant to be an all-rounder for all of that. And frankincense back in the day was very expensive. It was a practical gift because it, it was used for the healing of the sick and for treating of wounds. And it's also an oil that the priest would use when they sacrificed the burnt incense that would, as I said, they would make the smoke rise heavenward that symbolized the prayers and the cries of the people rising in faith to the heavens where God was. And scholars agree that symbology is very important in these pictures of these gifts because it represents the priestliness of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about today. Jesus, our high priest, and it's this picture that, that as we pray, as we cry to God, and as they go up to, to God, that we have a high priest in heaven who is standing representative of our prayers, speaking to God on our behalf. And it's even more than that, because uh, the high priest, that now if, again, as I said, if you're raised Catholic, you'll understand a little bit about, about, about priests. Um, as a young man, I, I realized that I wanted to be a priest. And I'm going to share a story about why, why that was the case. And then at 16, I realized I like girls too much. So there was, there was a bit of a compromise there. But, but today, I want to talk about Jesus, our high priest. Now listen, I, I, for 10 minutes, I want to preach some deep stuff. Now it's not anything that, that if you've grown up in Protestant church and, and Reformed church, you will have heard this before. But I, I, I really, I'm, I'm touching in on this holiness thing again this morning. But um, are you okay for some deep stuff? You hang with me. We've got a few brethren. Hey, where's the brethren in the house? Come on, this is going to light. Yep, a couple here. This is going to light your fire this morning. Um, and the priests in Scripture served for one, they had a primary role that the priests in Scripture, um, but in relationship to the people of God, but it was broken into two, two functions. The first thing, the priests made sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And as a priest, they would take an innocent animal, they would sacrifice it, and they would re- this would represent the forgiveness uh, for the people's sins. It was their job to bring sacrifice. Secondly, they would then pray on behalf of the people of God, representing the people of God. They became the representation of the people of God. And and I I, I want to talk for a moment on on those two things. We've got sacrifice on this side, and we've got the prayers of the people on the other side. Sacrifices and prayers. And, And I'll start with the sacrifices of sin. Right from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, we see that Eve sinned, that there was two opposing forces. We had the perfect holiness of God. And then we had the sinfulness, the disobedient of mankind. And we had God's holiness and mankind's sin. Now admittedly, in our culture today, not everyone likes the term sin. In fact, it's not a word you would regularly hear much anymore. Um, and, And you might say, well, I made a mistake, but I'm not sure I ever sinned. And who's to tell me I've sinned? You know, if it feels good, then do it. Uh, it's good for me, and it's, if it's good for me, then I'm okay. It, it, it'll be good for me. As long as I'm not harming anyone, it's okay. 
I heard someone say lately that it was a very outdated term in order to trick children into being good. In other words, who needs sin when you've got an elf on a shelf? Who's got an elf on a shelf? Anybody? One, two, yeah, Rachel and Handy. I'm not surprised at that one. <laughs> very good. And, 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 and we, we, we have this idea of that the naughty and nice thing goes on, especially at Christmas for God, because we, 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 we try to figure out who's naughty and nice. And we also tell Santa, who's making a list, and he's checking it twice, and he's definitely going to find out who's naughty and nice. Wow, okay. <laughs> but here comes the challenge. We, have, we, we need to understand the reality of sin before we before we, we, because if we don't understand that reality of sin, we will never understand the fullness and the holiness of God. Because if we take a casual approach to sin, we will never understand the full impact of Jesus as our high priest and what that really meant. And until we really understand, truly understand that God is holy, that he is perfect, and you'll never realize the cost and the tragedy of the sin and what it does to humanity. And you'll never understand the power of this little baby coming into the world and dying on a cross. You will never understand it if you don't understand the depth of what sin is in our lives and how it separates us. Because the greater the sin that we understand, the greater experience of the kingdom of God and what Jesus did as our high priest. Do you understand that? If you lessen sin, the impact of the cross goes less. Why is the world turning from God? Well, because they are no longer convicted by this level of sin in their lives. They, they've justified the bad behavior. And Satan has a, has a trick up his hand right now, which is to minimize sin in order that they minimize the impact of the cross. Are you with me? You get that? And what does it mean? Well, um, I shared a few months ago in holiness what it meant. Well, what it means for God to be holy is that he's in a class of his own. He's separate. It's to be other. He, he cannot possibly interact with sin. Therefore, he couldn't possibly interact with us. Why? Because we are full of sin. And God is transcendently separate from us. He, he in the garden removed himself. He removed himself from mankind. Because an only perfect God in every way possible, he's flawless, he is pure, he is never wrong, he is without stain. He is transcendently other and he is perfect. And therefore, if we go into his presence, his perfection is damaged. So he cannot interact with a fallen, broken, sinful world. Do you understand that? He had to separate himself from Adam and Eve in the garden. And you need to understand that the holiness is not just one of the attributes of God. Holiness is the perfection of all of his attributes. His power is holy, his grace is holy, his mercy is holy, his glory is holy. He is holy and the definition of all that is holy. His otherness, his perfection makes him worthy of our praise. Our God is holy. Our challenge is we're not. When, when Eve ate the fruit, and there's a whole process to get there, Adam and Eve were perfect in every way. They were made in the image of God. Only three people were. There's a Pharisee starting to come out again. Are you telling me we're not made in the image of God? Well, you kind of are, but you're not. And Adam and Eve and Jesus were the only three perfect human beings to ever live. And the image of God was shattered the moment that Eve ate of the fruit. 
And we see this breaking down of relationship and the, it's not just relationship with God, it's the perfection of God was shattered in that moment in the garden. And the perfect nature of humanity in that moment was, was, was made void. It was broken, it was damaged, it was irreparable. And we see the effect of broken love take place in an instant. We see negative emotion kick in and we see shame and we see guilt and we see rejection and we see Adam and Eve hiding from them. And God comes along and God separates himself from them. And yet, he didn't put them out of the garden because the broken love that took place hadn't had the effect of the affect of sinfulness just quite to the depth yet. And then we move to the next generation and we see Cain murders his brother. And God comes to Cain and he said, what have you done? The blood in the ground cries out to me and the blood sacrifice here is incredibly important to understand. And in that moment, in that moment, God said, this is what he said, he said to Cain, in your anger, sin is crouching at your door. It was his unresolved anger, his broken love, the void in his life that created the sinfulness. And God put him out of the garden. God put him out of his family. And Cain said, is this too much for me to bear? It's too much. God said this, from this day on you'll be known as a restless wanderer. Have you ever felt like a restless wanderer? And Cain separated from God because God had to separate himself from sin. And we see this process in the Old Testament and we see that once a year, one time a year, the high priest would come to make a sacrifice to fix what Eve broke in the garden. And, and there was a one time, it was a temporary payment for the sins of the people. It was to fix what Eve had, had created in the garden. And, and I mean, the man was like every man today, standing back watching as their wives do all the work. And we see, we, we, we see this, this, this position begin to happen through the Old Testament where temporary payment of the sins for a period of time, it was known as the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And it was an Israel feast day. And once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies. He would go into the Ark of the Covenant and they used to tie a rope around him so they could pull him out because many of you know that the Ark of the Covenant was a dangerous place to go if you were a sinner. If you went into the holies of holy with any sin in your life, you couldn't touch it. That's why you couldn't. If they touched it, bang, dead. Because at no point could God's holiness be ever compromised by sin. And they would go into the holy of holies and they would tie a rope around so if he, if he wasn't quite cleansed or done right, if he hadn't gone through the ceremonial riches, they could pull him out again and then, then get a new high priest and he would go in. I mean, the pressure in the high priest, you know, search your heart. Am I good today? Am I? You know, you know, how many washings do you have to do? How many, how many cleansings? How many animals need a sacrifice before you could go into the Holy of Holies? And that's what happened. And the high priest would come along, and this is what he would do. He'd enter the Holy of Holies, and he would light frankincense. And they would smell this burning. Huge amounts of frankincense would burn. And the smoke could be seen billowing during Yom Kippur for days. And the whole valley smelt of frankincense. And what would happen was they burnt this and, they, and it would be representative of the cries of the people for mercy from God. And then he would take the blood of an innocent animal and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And as the blood was sprinkled, this, this symbolic of this death of the innocent one 
would, would, would take the place of the guilty ones as a payment for our sins. And then something interesting would happen. They, they, they then would, would, would do, another, there was another animal involved. They would take a goat. Have you ever heard of a scapegoat? Anybody ever been made a scapegoat? You see, the term actually comes from this practice. And they would take an innocent goat and they would confess the sins of the people and they would symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto the goat, making it the scapegoat. And the, the goat then, the innocent goat, would be pushed out into the wilderness. It would be left out of the community or even pushed over a cliff to represent that the sins of the people had left with the scapegoat. And off they would go into the wilderness. And, and it was like the sin was leaving the community. And it's the symbolicness of people's sins being forgiven. Now, can I just pause for a moment? Have you ever thought about it? That's just dead weird. Like, to take this cute little animal, cut its throat, bleed it into a bucket, spring it on a, on a, on a, on a mercy seat, and then pray. I mean, it's just dead weird. Like, if I was God, I'm not sure that's what I would do. It's like, it's a weird, and they wonder why people of the world look at Christians and go, we're weird. If you're a weird Christian, stop it. The world's full of weird Christians. It does not need any more weird Christians. There's enough of them here already. I'm trying to get them from being weird to being kind of more normal Christians. Who's a normal Christian? Who's a weird Christian? Yep, I knew they were all a journey. <laughs> it's kind of weird and it's extreme and it's gross and this little animal gets the chop. It's just kind of weird. It's not, it's not the kind of thing that you do. And, and, and here's what I want you to understand. It's, it's important that you understand. God is completely just. He is completely just. And he has to deal with sin and the love that broke in the Garden of Eden. And it's not only that he's just, he also is just, but he's mercy. And here's the beauty of what God does. In the sacrifice, the sacrifice, God's justice comes along and he also extends God's mercy. He's just and mercy all at the same time. It's a, it's a mind boggler. And the price that is paid by someone else's, um, for, for our sin, the price that's paid transferred onto something else, someone else was paid for your sin, for your brokenness, for your broken love, for your damage, for your, your lifeless, dead spirit. A price had to be paid because did you know that you were dead from the moment that Eve ate the fruit and you were dead spiritually in your sin? Dead, deader than a dead thing. This body you're walking around in, if you don't know Jesus, you're dead. Spiritually dead. I've watched it a thousand times when I've watched people come spiritually alive. When Jesus comes into their life, they become spiritually alive. It's like a light goes on in their eyes, their face changes, and they find something. Now, it's not that he comes in and makes this, this world around you perfect, but he changes your life in a moment. And I've watched it a thousand times. And this holy God who's just comes in and extends you the mercy for the people that he loves so much. And yet, historically, this, this temporary payment of the old covenant was a temporary measure. But we're not under the old covenant anymore. We're under the new covenant. It means that, that we have this sacrifice that's no longer just temporary. And in Hebrews 10, for God was with us and he made holy by sacrifice for the body of Jesus Christ once 
and for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, trying to fix the sins of the people over and over and over again, making sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sin. But our high priest, Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sin. Listen to this. Good for all time. Verse 14, for by the one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. It's no longer temporary. It's no longer just a, a, an option for the high priest to go in and do a little ritual stuff. It is now for you. And if you choose it today, it is dealt with, your sins covered, everything you've ever done, everything you do today, and everything you ever will do is covered by the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that he made once and for all. Let, let, me, let me give you a visual. Um, whenever I, I was, you know, I told you I was an altar boy. Um, in P7, you, you kind of got a lineup, and the priest picked a few altar boys. And I remember this being such a privilege. I'm thinking, the priest picked me? And one of the things you did, you got your little robes, all right? And you kind of got this black gown that went all the way down, and you got a white thing that went over it. Now, to be honest with you, I thought they were pretty cool in the day. They're, when I look back, they maybe weren't so cool. But this one particular day in school, uh, there was two older boys supposed to be on, but they got sick. And the, a message came over to school, would, would any of the older boys come and, and, and do mass because there was something going on? And I, and I said I would go, but I didn't have my robes. They were, they were, they were in the wash from the day before. And I went in, and he said, no robes. I said, no, sure. I didn't know I was doing this today. He said, there's an old, if you go down into the basement, which if you, if you go into the back of St. Congo's Church, the black and white one in the corner, you go down in there, there's an old like treasure trove type thing, like a big trunk. And you go in there, and there was all these old, old uh, altar boy uniforms. So I hoped through them. Can I tell you something? They stunk to high heaven. And they weren't the new modern cool ones, which I thought were cool. There were these like 1960s old dowdy things that smelt like mothballs. They were awful. And I pulled this one out that would only fit me and I put it on and I put it over me and it stunk to high heaven. It was just minging. And I come out through mass having to do the bits and pieces that you do and all the ringing bells and all that stuff. And, and all I could smell was this. And, and I, the priest that was there at the time was a man called Father Magdalena, an amazing man of God. And he was just holy, you know, he's just a holy man. And, um, and he, I've never seen him do a, a, a illustration at Mass ever in my life before. And in this particular Mass, it was during Lent, he, he's, he did this illustration. He had heard me complaining about the smell of, of, of the robes beforehand. I was complaining a lot. It was stinking. You don't understand. And he brought me up to the front of the altar in front of everybody and he was given this illustration of the high priest and he took his priestly robe off, big robe, and he put it over me and his was fresh and clean and priestly. My robes were altar boyish, wanting, wanting to be a priest, thing smelly. And it was like this idea that, that this robe of the priestly robe was placed over me. And it was like the smell went away. The, the, 
The old robe didn't matter anymore. I'd been given this priestly robe. And Jesus, our high priest, isn't some distant savior that feels sorry for us. He's a high priest that cares. And scripture says this, our high priest understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings you do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of the grace of God. There will be there where we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. You have to understand that, 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 that when you get this robe, the Bible says you receive a robe of righteousness. You are covered. Everything that's in you that stinks to high heaven, the God that cannot go into that place is covered by the high priest's garments. And he comes along, bam, do you want to come back up again? We're going to take communion. Can I say this? Everything you're going through, your high priest understands. He knows your pain. He understands your difficulties. And wherever you're going through from the very moment, he understands. If you're stressed or overwhelmed today, he gets it. You don't think he knew in the Garden of Gethsemane what stress was. You don't know that Jesus didn't know what it was like to be abandoned by his friends in the hour of his need. He, he knows. Maybe you're facing anxiety today. He, he understands Maybe you're dealing with crazy people in your family. He, he understands. You know, it's a spiritual principle to have crazy people in your family. Everybody does. Put up your hand if you've got a crazy people in your family. You see? Now turn around to all those people whose hands aren't up and say, can I join your family? <laughs> Jesus was the Messiah and his family thought he was a lunatic. He cares. He was conceived out of wedlock to a teenage mom, scandalous in the day. He was raised in a small town where all the whispers and the gossip went on. It's funny, growing up in Antrim, where you have a history, a history, and now you're a minister in the town, all the gossip. Tell you hundreds of stories, great fun. I'll say this, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Jesus gets it. And as we come in a moment, something took place on the cross that this, this gift understood. When, when he died on the cross, when he when he gave up his life. The greatest difficulty he had was in a moment, a split moment, God had to lift his mercy off Jesus for a split second. And in that moment, Jesus felt the full weight of the sin of man. Now the good thing about God is God didn't leave him there. Because if that hadn't have happened, the history of the Israelites who had burnt all of those sacrifices 
reflecting the one true Messiah who would come and, and make it right forever so that you would have everlasting life that you would have life to the full and no matter how crazy your life is right now that Jesus would come in meet your needs and meet you where you're at and as we do communion this morning if you don't know who Jesus is if you've never met him if you've never had an encounter with him we've got a bunch of people here who would help you make that decision maybe you're here and you're under conviction today and if you're not you should be because the gravity of our sin and I said this a few weeks ago and it was deeply profound just take the grace and the mercy that Jesus gives you off for a split second the way that God took it off Jesus you want to know what's in you do that and then when you come to communion which is the reflection of the high priest who died on the cross reflecting all of this history that through his death and his resurrection you can be free the night before he was betrayed he broke the bread he said there's my body take it and eat it and then he took the cup he said there's a cup of a new covenant a new and everlasting covenant he was talking about himself and the bloodshed it was the finishing sacrifice And maybe you just need to encounter the Lord this morning. Well, I've got a little bottle of frankincense. And if you want to come up, take communion. So what I want you to do is go out the middle aisle, come down the two side aisles, come across the front and out the middle again. That way then we'll keep the traffic. But I'm going to stand here and if you want some, if you want to smell some frankincense, and I'm warning you, it's got a lot of those things I read out in it. All right. But as you smell that and understand that the sacrifice of your prayers have been heard for eternity. And in that frankincense, you know, be assured that it's a symbol of the Lord hearing your prayers. And that's why this gift by a bunch of wise men was really important. Let's stand. If you wanna just come from, from the back first, come down the sides, up the front just work your way and yeah.